HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink, inspiring public curiosity about food. Learn more at mofad.org. I'm HRN's Communications Director, Kat Johnson, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and Three, our weekly food news roundup. This week, we're celebrating Valentine's Day. Whether it's your favorite day of the season or you avoid it like the plague, there's no debating. It's a big day for the world of food and hospitality. Valentine's Day is what we uh, refer to in the industry as a blackout day. I don't feel that my manlyhood is threatened when I order a glass of rosé or, God forbid, a rosé champagne. It's an old Jamaican drink from way back, and we just decided to bring it back into existence. It's a drink that the men, they believe it really does wonders. Tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network. That's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, this is Lisa Held coming to you live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, and you're listening to The Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. On today's show, I'm sharing the recording of a panel discussion I hosted in front of a live audience at Brooklyn's Museum of Food and Drink. The panel was meant to tackle the issue of agricultural labor from several different angles by representing diverse viewpoints. It features former farm worker and Coalition of Immokalee Workers senior staff member Gerardo Reyes Chavez, the Reverend Noel D'Amico of the Alliance for Fair Food, Professor Margaret Gray, author of Labor and the Locavore, and Jody Beloit, a farmer at Roxbury Farm. In conversations about building a sustainable food system, questions about labor are often ignored or overshadowed by other issues. Who are the people growing our food, and what are their experiences? How, as informed eaters, can we make food choices that lead to fair wages and safe, humane working conditions? In this episode of The Farm Report, those questions are front and center. First of all, I want to thank the Museum of Food and Drink for hosting this event, and of course, all of you for taking the time to be part of the conversation, especially today. I know the weather was not amazing, so thanks for making it here. <laughs> um, so I, I cover a lot of different aspects of the food system, from the field, um, the nitty-gritty of like soil health, all the way through to um, how food gets to people, to restaurants. Um, and farm labor is one of the topics that I'm the most interested in talking about and reporting on because it tends to get the least attention among the many discussions happening about where our food comes from and the ways that it's produced. Um, and it doesn't get a lot of attention, and yet it has such a direct impact on the people and families um, who are involved with agriculture. And those people are often from really vulnerable populations. So we're going to dive into this conversation. I'm going to start by introducing these incredibly smart people who are up here with me today. I'm going to keep the intros really short so we can just get into everything, um, but you have their full bios in 
um, the program there. And of course, you can speak to them after, look up their work online, all that good stuff. Um, so we're just going to go down the line. Um, right next to me um, is Gerardo Reyes. Um, he is a former farm worker who is now a senior staff member for the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, a worker-based human rights organization that is the international leader in changing conditions for farm workers via its fair food program. Next to him, we have Reverend Noelle D'Amico. Uh, she works with the Alliance for Fair Food, organizing institutional and grassroots involvement in the Coalition of Immokalee Workers campaigns and teaches community organizing and social change at New York University. Then we have Margaret Gray, Maggie, um, an associate professor of political science at Adelphi University and the author of Labor and the Locavore, The Making of a Comprehensive Food Ethic, which is a book about New York farm workers and food politics. I'm kind of shocked that I haven't read it and I can't wait to read it right after this. <laughs> um, and then we have Jody Beloit, a farmer at Roxbury Farm, an organic diversified CSA farm in Kinderhook, New York who also serves on the board of Equity Trust, an organization working to implement more socially equitable forms of property ownership. So as you can see, um, the amazing thing about this panel is we have people who have insights from all different angles of this issue. People who have worked on the farm, worked in the fields, who are educating about it, who are ac activists. Um, so I think we really are gonna cover a lot of ground. So I think I always like to start with the experiences of people really doing the work. Um, so, Gerardo, I would love to um, start with you. Um, what was your personal experience as a farm worker um, in both Mexico and Florida? Can you talk a little bit about the working conditions you encountered there and how the Coalition of Immokalee Worker Movement got started? Just yeah. a tiny little question to start off. <laughs> <laughs> the story of my life. Um, no, first of all, thanks for for uh, you know inviting us to be part of this amazing panel. And um, I'll start by saying that you know, as a, as a worker, I started as a farm worker when I was 11 years old. Um, and one thing that I wanted to do uh, was to basically break the cycle of poverty <clears throat> that uh, I saw repeating itself generation after generation in the context of rural Mexico. When I got here, I came with that idea, you know, to, to the United States that it was possible because you hear that working in the U.S. is this, like, idea of the American dream and all, and you come to realize that it's all a lie and that it's all based on moments that you hear from people that were here that won't talk to you about how it really is, how, how, how it really uh, happens for them. Because obviously, I think that in human nature, we tend to have an aversion to the moments that causes pain. We don't talk about them. We don't, and, and the same is true for every situation where pain is inflicted on us or on our dignity. So you hear, you know, how great it is because people talk about only the moments in which they feel that they were achieving something that they dream um, in part. But the reality is totally different. When I got here, I started to work in uh, uh, harvesting uh, oranges in the orange groves in central Florida. Then uh, I realized with all of my coworkers that you know we were not going to be able to even pay rent with the money they were paying us. So we ended up deciding to move south and going to Imokali, which was originally uh, the plan. Uh, we were thinking on going to Imokali because that was the place that people talked about uh, to us. So as like where the jobs were. Yeah. Uh, so so when we started to work in the tomato industry. My co-workers and I uh, were working with this crew leader that decided not to pay us uh, because he got mad that we asked him to pay us in advance for work that we've, we were doing for about a week and a half. We were asking for $20 each so that we, can, uh, we could uh, buy utensils and food um, instead of buying 
uh, without any other option from uh, a member, a family member of the crew leader uh, to a really expensive price. So we were getting in debt while working. He took that as an as a insolence, I guess, and decided that we were not likable workers. So uh, we took that as an insult because we were already working for almost two weeks. We were not asking for something unreasonable, and he ended up firing us. He took the deposit of the mobile home where we were living, and we ended up, while working, being homeless and jobless. In a desperate situation, we started to look for a job with anyone. Um, started to just basically, literally chase uh, bosses, asking uh, people that were uh, working on the orange um, groves to give us a job. And we were able to then connect uh, with someone who was willing to pay us in advance 20 bucks each so that we could buy breakfast and lunch for that day. Uh, we went to work. Um, with that person stayed on the bus um, uh, outside, basically just in his parking lot. He offered his house, but there were several of us who so we didn't want to intrude in his life. Um, he, he was a nice man. There is where I met workers who were part of uh, the second case of slavery that the coalition helped to prosecute, investigating with the FBI and the DOJ and bringing the boss to uh, prison. Now, these workers were uh, basically bought by their boss. They, uh, their boss arranged to buy them as if they were property. And then uh, they stacked them in a dilapidated, overcrowded uh, trailer in the middle of an isolated swamp. Um, they told me their story. I shared with them, or we did uh, share our own stories of abuse. We became roommates. And that's how my story began, uh, working with uh, or participating first with the coalition of immigrant workers while working in the fields, uh, harvesting different crops. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think when you start to talk about slavery today, it, it, it can be hard to, for people to hear that and even contextualize it because it, it seems so crazy that it would be happening today, right? But there were actually a lot of cases in Florida. I think. I, I mean, I think maybe nine of them even were prosecuted in court since then. So it, it's not like it wasn't a one-time one thing. Uh, no, no. And, and, and the reason why these cases continue to happen, since 1997 until the program was established in 2011, uh, the Fair Food Program, which I think I'm going to have an opportunity to share a Definitely. bit. Um, there's been a case almost every year, you know, uh, nine investigations, eight prosecutions, uh, 1,200 workers that have been freed from these conditions, uh, 15 bosses that have gone to jail for forcing workers to, to work under threats of death, sometimes uh, not just against them, but against their families when they know where they are coming from or if they are involved in their recruitment um, in their home countries. Now, when you see all of these cases and when you try to understand why they continue to happen, um, there's sometimes a sad reality in which when we talk about it, people tend to excuse um, the, the, the situation by saying, oh, but it is because they are immigrants. Oh, but it is because uh, the people that are suffering this are uh, undocumented maybe, or because they don't speak the language, so they are more vulnerable. And while all of those things have a little uh, portion of truth, those are not the defining factors. The reality is that we need to look into history. And when we do that, we eventually will come to the same conclusion, which is slavery has never really stopped existing in agriculture. And when we talk about what people's value is that found themselves inside these cases of slavery, uh, we will realize, if we are people of conscience, we will realize that we are devaluating the humanity of those who are doing these jobs today. And we need to stop doing that. We need to see people as whole people. And we need to recognize that the farm worker community, whether they come from Mexico, Guatemala, Haiti, uh, or other countries, to feed this nation need to be seen as full 
human beings and need to be treated as such. Um, slavery is nothing but a continuum of the conditions that we have allowed for too long happening on the way, uh, on, on the agricultural industry, that it's so important, but yet when you think about people describing situations of abuse where you, the crew leader is holding a, a gun and threatening to kill you if you escape, if you make a, a call uh, without supervision, if you do any of the things that should be normal, you talk about that and when you, you say, you know, this is happening um, in, in a farm worker community, people tend to be kind of okay with that. We need to change that. We need to reach out inside of us and understand that we are actually helping the problem to continue. Absolutely. Um, Maggie, I want to jump, jump to you. Um, so um, you reported on farm workers in New York um, for your book, and I'm curious if you can add to um, what Gerardo just described in terms of just the experiences of workers. What did you encounter um, with the workers that you talked to and wrote about um, here in New York? What were some of the biggest challenges that they were facing? Sure. Um, I also just want to point out that when Gerardo says slavery, he means slavery. Today we have a lot of human trafficking violations. He's not talking about human trafficking. These are actually cases that were under slavery laws. And um, one of the successes of the fair food program is that it has ended slavery in Florida's fields. And I just want you to think about that for a moment. In the 21st century, that we have to celebrate that fact that slavery is no longer existent in the 21st century. So just the significance there. So... My research with Hudson Valley farm workers, um, I can tell you that everything that Gerardo spoke about and all the poor conditions that exist in Florida and Immokalee, I've heard cases of all of that in New York State as well. But the focus of my research wasn't so much trying to reveal particular types of labor abuses. I was very much focused on what were the everyday experiences of workers and what were the everyday practices of farmers to try to understand the what we call more structural aspects of the work itself. And so when we come right down to it, it's really about power. Um, and to piggyback on what Gerardo said, yeah, some of that power relationship has to do with workers being undocumented or even legal guest workers with them not speaking English, with them not having the same level of education, this all plays into power. Um, but the, on the other side of it, you have an agricultural industry that in some ways has very outsized power in the United States, considering only 2%, uh, less than 2% actually of the population is engaged in farming. But so much farm policy developed and the major farm organizations developed at a time when far farming was the main industry in this country. So in a way, a lot of those relationships developed much earlier. Um, and so just a quick lesson, if you, whoever you are, whatever your legal status, if you were to work on a New York State farm, you would not have a right to a day of rest, you would not have a right to overtime pay, and you would not have collective bargaining protections. So collective bargaining protections in the most basic sense means that if you went to the farmer to say, hey, do you think we could have $20 in advance, right? So you went in a little bit of a group to ask for some sort of change. Um, in industries, most industries which have collective bargaining protections, you can't get fired for that, for asking for a change, but in agriculture, you can. Um, so that also really, so the, the law itself plays into a power dynamic that makes it really difficult for workers. Um, and then another part of this puzzle, and I'm sure Jody will talk about this a little bit more, is that we, we don't have a lot of super wealthy farmers. Um, certainly they're out there, but so many farmers are struggling. Um, and they don't have control of the prices of the seeds or the fertilizer or the tractor repairs or fuel. 
Um, but they do have some control over labor costs or trying to get more out of their workers. And so it becomes part of a business model in a way. Um, and it can also be really tough for farmers who are trying to do more. Um, they can experience pressure from farmers in their neighborhood who are saying, hey, my workers know your workers are making a dollar more an hour. Um, and that's not so great for me over here. So that's another situation that can happen. Um, and then I guess the final part I'd just touch on is um, this other, the idea of paternalism. The farms in the Hudson Valley are really different from the farms in Immokalee. We have a lot of really small farms, two workers, five workers. When I did my research, the most amount of workers was about 75 on a particular apple orchard. And in those types of farms, it means that the farmer can be directly supervising the workers and they know all the workers' names. And particularly on really small farms, they get to know the workers pretty well and have relationships with them. Um, and I write about how paternalism can develop and the most basic way to think about paternalism is when you get a benefit that's not part of the labor contract. So whether you're getting food from the farm or access to using a farm vehicle or maybe free housing, and that's not part of a regular labor contract. And so as a worker, the only way you feel that you can continue to get this is, is through your labor, right? And just sort of keeping your head down and not complaining too much. Um, so like Gerardo said, there are a lot of elements that go into trying to understand the reasons behind why workers might not have a great situation on their farms. Right. And you brought up a lot of things um, that I think maybe, Jody, you could jump in on. One is, one is just the difference in, in size of farms. So like when, when we talk about these farms in Florida that employ thousands of workers, um, it's a yeah, well, right. I mean, but there's sort of many different kinds of farms, and the relationship of the farmer and the laborer is is very different depending on the size. And often, a very very small um, new farm, the farmer is the farm worker. You know, they might not employ anyone at first. Um, so, I guess Jody, can you speak a little bit to that, and then also just to the side to the um, point that uh, Maggie made about affording labor as a farmer and, and how, um, how you've managed that? Um, so I've been f farming since I was 13 during the summers and started farming full-time in 1999 as a farm apprentice. I think that's on the, the East Coast and the West Coast. Um, that's how a lot of people who don't have experience agri in agriculture learn how to farm. Um, so I did that for a number of years, and then I became a farm partner at the farm I'm at now in 2004. Um, so yeah, I've always been working on the farm with the crew. Um, we employ between 10 to 14 people during the season. Um, and I read Tomatoland a number of years ago, and uh, yeah, it was, it's, yeah, it made me think a lot about how um, agriculture in this country does it wrong and how we don't see the people harvesting our food as full human beings and how how can farmers change that um, one small step at a time and I think it's important that we do and I think um, that's the reason why we like to be a community supported farm um, we have a little bit more control over the price that we can get for our produce that way um, but we still haven't reached the point where we can afford to pay overtime or that we can really pay people the living wage. Um, and that's something that is a goal for us. And I think we're trying to, you know, charge a price that we can pay as much as we can, but also then not price ourselves out of the market. So um, it is a struggle to find a way in this food system to be a fair employer. Um, and it's something we continue to work on. I think like that's it's why it's so important to have farmers involved in these conversations, right? To have um, people from all angles talking about um, fair wages and and labor. Um, so um, 
I don't, so I don't want to skip over you, Noelle, but I'm gonna, I, I want to come back to Gerardo just for a second to talk a little, I think it would be great if you could talk a little bit about um, the Fair Food Program and um, how, it, how it works now, because you kind of got into the challenges and, of your work and the genesis of becoming interested in it. Um, for people who don't know, like, the incredible success the Fair Food Program has had, um, can you just kind of go through that a little bit, like how it works today? I'm sure I'm gonna miss. Oh, there's a sound that this is making. Okay, uh, I'm sure that I'm gonna miss some uh, points. But Noel, uh, who presents often uh, together with us, um, I'm gonna ask you to fill in if there's some points. Um, I would say that you know the cases of slavery that I was mentioning being the extreme. Um, are, when I mentioned that they are the continuum, of the, the norm in agriculture was a uh, reality in which workers were receiving wages that were stagnant for more than 30 years, uh, 40 to 45 cents per a 32-pound bucket of tomatoes. Um, that meant that a farmer would have to pick uh, close to a two and a half tons of tomatoes to be able to just catch up with the minimum wage. Um, Situations of uh, verbal and physical abuse uh, were not uncommon. Situations of violence happening to workers constantly every season were reported. Even the workers were afraid of reporting that because of the violent uh, nature of the crew leaders that were in absolute control. And the indifference of the industry that, al that allowed that kind of behavior as long as the crew leaders would bring people to do the job. So when you have that and a society trying to excuse the abuse, then you have the extreme, which is slavery. Uh, in agriculture, uh, according to study, there were 80% of farm worker women that reported having experienced sexual harassment or assault. Um, and that's 80% of the people that spoke, um, but not everybody speaks about those things, so it's, it's more than that. So. To fight all of these, the coalition started to do uh, a lot of actions in the 90s, focusing on the growers, focusing on two main goals that continue to be um, the goals today. One of them is to increase wages. Um, the other one is to address the unbalance of power between workers and their employers that allow for all of these kinds of abuses to take place without any kind of resolution for workers. So the coalition did three general strikes, um, hunger strike of... Uh, uh, six members uh, that went without food for 30 days, a march of 230 miles um, trying to uh, reach the growers um, and, and get to, uh, to the table to talk about how to eliminate all of this, how to improve wages. But the industry wasn't ready. There were important changes that happened. Of course, we were able to eliminate violence in Immokalee, but it continued to happen up north. A couple of companies, some middle growers, started to pay a little bit more, but for the most part, wages continue to be the same um, in most of the industry. And then uh, we were on a juncture in which we needed to switch from the question of the organizer um, to the question of the economist. So the question of the organizer is how do we make this abusive behavior stop? Right? How do we get rid of slavery? How do we uh, push the industry to give us uh, an increase in wages. That's the question of the organizer. But the moment in which we switch the question and ask the question of the economist, which states a very obvious question, who's benefiting the most? The answer changes. And in that moment, we started to analyze the market because we realized that big brands like Taco Bell, McDonald's, Burger King, Walmart, all of those brands uh, started, you know, decades before that question um, uh, made it to one of our weekly meetings with the community. And they grow so fast that they were able to dictate the price, the size, the texture, the flavor of, uh, in this case, the tomatoes that they needed because they were buying in such incredibly huge amounts, um, developing something they call the power of the purchasing order. So with that power, they basically push the entire industry to give them lower prices. Now the 
agricultural industry is not going to let that uh, represent a loss. So what they did is adapt. And the way they did adapt is by cutting costs with the farm worker community. So we were subsidizing in a way the incredible pressure that was coming from the market. So our theory of change began. And what we uh, basically proposed to consumers all over the country was that if the market is the one that's crushing our dreams and preventing us from getting a raise, and by its indifference, allowing for business to go as usual when all of these horrendous things are going on, then the market must be used to solve these problems by paying a premium that goes to the workers to address that stagnation in wages and by demanding that when they do business with any supplier uh, from the tomato industry, they do it on the condition of the implementation of a code of conduct that we as workers create to guarantee that there's dignity in the fields. So that's how it all started. We started in 2001 with Taco Bell. We were, we were absolutely alone. Uh, did tours stopping in 17 different cities in 15 days, uh, spread in every city uh, in different places. Uh, the community spoke up with students, religious leaders, and by the end of that boycott, because we attempted to communicate with Taco Bell, they refused, so we declared a boycott. Four years later, 300 universities were organizing in solidarity with the Imogali workers. Uh, the National Council of Churches was uh, part of a, an effort to inform all uh, the members of 32 denominations, 50 million people, I think, um, were part of that, received information about this fight. So it basically pushed the corporations to a point in which they had to recognize that it was time to sit at the table. Taco Bell and its parent company, John Brands, uh, which is considered the largest fast food conglomerate on the planet, came on board by a group of one of the poorest communities of workers in the country. So once we did that, we gave the first step. A few years later, McDonald's, Burger King, Subway, Whole Foods, and a total of 14 corporations have come on board because uh, consumers all over the country have stand with us, understanding that we share our story and not to uh, harvest uh, pity from anyone. That's not the reason why we share this. We don't want people to feel sorry for us. We don't want people to come with the right idea, uh, the right strategy, because we, you know, uh, following the stereotype that people sometimes uh, hear too often, um, that we are voiceless, that we are uh, someone who needs somebody, somebody else to craft, uh, you know, any kind of strategy because we apparently don't have a good brain, which I disagree completely. Um, and, and um, you know, we, we are proposing something new. We're proposing that we, as a community, and communities that are oppressed everywhere, we have what it takes to be able to create the systems that we need to guarantee dignity on the workplace but we are often ignored, too often ignored because of who we are. So we were breaking the stereotypes in the process and we were able to create what we call the Fair Food Program. Now what that is, it's the concentration of pressure of the market standing with us because we pressure the brands to sign legally binding agreements with us to condition uh, their purchasing to the implementation of rights, uh, like, for example, the right to complain without retaliation that has resulted since the implementation of the program in 2011 um, into more than 2,300 complaints that have resulted in the uncovering of uh, more than 8,000 problems that have been identified and solved. That has led the entire industry into a transformation like never before to the point in which we have been able to prevent sexual assault and to prevent slavery from happening in any of the participating farms. That is what the power of the market has because it creates a dynamic in which in one side, you have the workers crafting the rights that they know are needed. 
they have the knowledge on how to make it work. And they use the system that they themselves created to report and then have a resolution process coming. Then you have a third-party organization that is charged with the monitoring of it. They are very effective because they have the power of the market backing them up. It's not what they say they'll do. Uh, it's not a, a thing that's based on goodwill. It's a thing that's based on concrete power. They have the power of the market saying to the growers, these are the rules of the game. You have to make sure that there are no cases of sexual assault. You have to make sure the workers are empowered to speak up to help you as a grower identify where the bad players are so that you as a grower can do your part in eliminating those bad players from your operation because they are now a liability for your business. Because if you don't, what's going to happen is we are going to cut business with you and go to farmers that are willing to do the work. When that happens, you create a, you can call it um, a consequence if you are a grower that's looking at this from kind of like a negative side, uh, or you can call it an incentive. It's, it's, yeah, whatever you choose. But what it is, is a powerful mechanism that represents millions of dollars in losses or a securing of faithful business relationships based on the marrying of human rights and business uh, with any, any brand that signs onto the Fair Food Program. So it is a complete change of life for farm workers in the fields. It is, as you were saying, a matter of power, but the right kind of power and in the right hands, not just any kind of power without overseeing this kind of power that we are proposing, it's going to spread all over the country. And there's people all over the world that are interested in it. And we will explore it with all of you. Well, and I think um, the thing that is so amazing, which you've just been going through, is that it is a, a worker-started movement, a worker-led movement. Um, but in growing it and amplifying it, um, you've created these alliances. And so, Noel, I know... Um, you work with the Alliance for Fair Food. Can you talk a little bit about how you support that worker-led movement and why those alliances are important? Absolutely. Well, first I want to say thank you to everybody who's shown up here because you, like me, are not farm workers, right? Most of us buy our food at a grocery store. We go to McDonald's to eat. We go to other places. What is our role in all of this? Farm workers did not bring Taco Bell to the table in 2005 on their own. Remember those 300 universities that Gerardo mentioned? In addition to those universities, there were children as young as seven, elders in their 90s, ordinary families involved in working together with the coalition. There were churches that were involved, synagogues that were involved, women's rights groups, community organizations, uh, farm-to-table organizations, small farmers were involved, academics were involved. And it was by working together that we were able to demand a level of corporate accountability that has been unmatched in the world. Think about it. 14 of the world's largest retailers are in the fair food program, and they have legally bound themselves. It's not a promise. It's not a gentleman's agreement. It's not if they get around to it. It is a legally binding agreement through which they say to their suppliers, if you fail to correct problems that are identified, you can no longer sell to us. How did those agreements come about? They came about because farm workers and consumers united to demand they come about. They came about because consumers decided that they would not just shop as a way of you know, forwarding fair trade, that's good to do, but they would actually create a new model of fair food with the workers themselves. 
And so we got out into the streets. We marched with a coalition of Immokalee workers in massive, beautiful, compelling, direct actions. We fasted together. We went to companies' annual meetings and spoke as consumers united with farm workers. We brought the power of civil society institutions to bear and to say, we can do this another way. After all, these food systems didn't spring out of nothing. We created them. This is our world, and we can change them. And the best news ever is that we've been enormously successful. Because of the partnership between consumers and farm workers, we have the Fair Food Program now in operation for its eighth year now. Harvard Business Review said that it was one of the most important social impact success stories of the last hundred years. And that's because it's working. There's a new bar now for what counts as 21st century social responsibility. And because we have that new bar, that new bar again didn't spring out of nowhere. It sprang up because as the coalition got on those buses and left Immokalee and went to New Jersey and went to New York and went to California and went to Michigan and went to Chicago and they told their story and they told what their solution would be, ordinary people said, yes, that makes sense to me and I'm ready to work with you. And that's how these changes came about. I'm talking about little kids in their Sunday schools, writing letters and postcards and getting whole congregations to be involved. I'm talking about students who went on hunger strikes for weeks, encouraging their universities to cut contracts with corporations that refused to join the Fair Food Program. In fact, right now, there's one holdout in the fast food industry. Who knows who it is? Who, who, let me hear you. Wendy's, right? We have of the top five fast food retailers in the nation. We have Yum Brands and all its brands, Taco Bell, KFC, etc. We have McDonald's, we have Burger King, we have Subway, but not Wendy's. And that's where you come in. Because Wendy's right now wants to go ahead and try to do social responsibility on its own in a very backward way. In fact, it has decided that it will create its own code of conduct and hire one of these corporate monitoring firms that's out there. You know, the corporate monitoring firms that monitored that factories uh, were safe and then they burned down. Monitoring firms that notoriously certified Bangladesh garment industry factors, factories as okay, and then they collapsed. We don't need any more of that kind of corporate monitoring. What we need is the kind of intensive depth of monitoring that's provided by a dedicated third-party monitor, like the Fair Food Standards Council. So Wendy's is recreating something that we've already seen and we know fails. And on the other hand, they have the opportunity to join the presidential medal-winning Fair Food Program. We know one day, Wendy's will be our partner in this program. It's not a matter of whether, it's only a matter of when. And when, that's up to us. That's up to us. Consumers have played an invaluable and continue to play a critical role, both in bringing new corporations into the program in purchasing the fair food label. I'm standing up for those of you listening to a podcast and pointing to my t-shirt, which has the fair food insignia. If you go into Whole Foods, you'll find fair food insignias on the tomatoes that are produced from the program. And it's also about marshalling your shares 
in these corporations that haven't come on board, like Wendy's. Investors have shared their proxies or have gone to speak at annual meetings. There's lots of ways to be involved, but the most important thing is that everyone can be involved. I am so delighted there are children here tonight because literally children have been right on the front lines in their elementary schools corresponding with Wendy's, calling on them to come on board. You don't have to be, you might have to be 18 to vote, but you don't have to be 18 to take action in this beautiful movement for human rights. So that's some of what's been going on on the consumer side, and it's exciting because, friends, the Fair Food Program exists because people like you, and I know some of the people even here in the room with us tonight, took action. You said, we're not going to stand on the sidelines. We're going to say, we believe these conditions can be ended. Because for too many years, people just said, oh, well, that's the agricultural industry. You know, you'll never solve sexual assault. You'll never end forced labor. That's just really a part of the fabric of the industry. It is not a part. And we've shown it together that it's not a part. And now the very model of the Fair Food Program, worker-driven social responsibility, is not only transforming agriculture, it's also beginning to transform supply chains in other industries around the world. And so look for those transformations, like the Bangladesh Accord on Fire and Safety, which uses similar mechanisms and is now protecting 2.7 million garment workers. That's an incredible scaling up, right? A scaling up and a transference of a model that began in Immokalee with workers who decided that they would use their analysis and bring their experience to the wider public. And together, we're making that change happen. This episode is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink. Featuring a variety of interactive displays, MOFAD encourages eaters of all ages to be curious about food. The museum currently operates MOFAD Lab, a 5,000-square-foot experimental space in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, where Chow, making the Chinese-American restaurant, is currently on show until the end of March 2019. This exhibition celebrates the birth and evolution of Chinese-American restaurants, tracing their nearly 170-year history, and sparking conversations about food culture, immigration, and what it means to be American. It highlights the evolution timeline of Chinese-American restaurant menus, dating back to 1910, and also highlights a tasting section where participants get to enjoy tastings created by the country's most talented chefs who specialize in Chinese-American cuisine. Make sure you check out Chow while you still can. The exhibition closes at the end of March 2019. Check out MOFAD's tastings and extensive event calendar at mofad.org events. So you're identifying all of these actions that people can take, which um, I think is, is really important. Um, and I, th I think I want to just like keep that going and maybe um, see if anyone else has things they want to add about just what, as consumers, people can do to in their daily lives to support um, farm workers, to support um, farms that are doing the right thing, to kind of like get involved and make the right food choices um, that support fair labor. Okay, so I wanna bring it back to New York a little bit, and I also wanna give you a little bit of perspective on how change can happen. One of the things I spoke about is power, right? These workers don't have power. So I think in the most ideal sense, anything that's going to get workers power to create change is something important. So you should be looking for worker-driven campaigns and efforts and wanting to see that workers are involved. 
if we were to establish a campaign that purely just targeted, okay, we're just going to do a whole lot of leadership training with workers to empower them, some of the problems there are that's going to take a really, really long time. Um, and in a place like New York, where you don't have a year-round growing season, it can be very difficult to organize workers who are seasonal or who may be going home after a couple of years and coming back again, or maybe even migrating every year to New York. Um, another model that we've long relied on is the government. Um, and this really started um, with Upton Sinclair and a book called The Jungle. And he once wrote, and because The Jungle ended up um, resulting in some significant regulation around the food industry. And he once wrote that he was aiming for people's hearts and he hit them in the stomach because he was writing a book about these immigrant laborers in meat factories and consumers got very upset about what were the implications for the health of their food. And so I think one thing to think about today is because of the growing foodie population out there, how do we aim at people's stomachs and hit them in the heart so that they become more active in truly looking at a more holistic change in the food industry and not just what, what am I putting in my own body, right? Um, and I think the government has largely failed us when it comes to workers. Um, so for example, I just wanna, give you an anecdote about wage theft, right? So wage theft is when I don't get paid for all the hours I worked. Um, and I've spoken to workers who've said, I don't get paid for all the hours worked and I never say anything about it. And I think it can be really difficult for us to, to understand that. And I think it can be really difficult for Jody to understand that also, like why wouldn't you be paying workers for the hours they worked? Um, but from the worker point of view, I want you to consider that the first time it happens, workers often assume it was just a mistake, and so they don't say anything. Um, and then it might not happen right away, and then the next time it happens, they're thinking to themselves, maybe this is more than a mistake, and maybe I should say something, but it's really tough to gain the courage to say that. And then by the time it happens for the third time, they now feel complicit. Right, that, oh my gosh, this is no longer a story of three hours, this is our nine hours, and this feels like a really big deal. And when the um, Fair Food Program first um, put out their main report on the success of the program, um, I remember we were at the CUNY Graduate Center and I asked a question afterwards and I said, tell me what's happened with wage theft. And they said, it's gone. Because as soon as the worker gets that first paycheck with some funds missing, there's a support line that they can call and then there's resources for them to rely on. Um, and I have to say, I, I'm completely in agreement that um, there's nothing else happening around the country in terms of farm workers that has had so much success as the fair food program. Um, and this is a market model, right? And I have to say, because I've, known the people working on this from the beginning. Um, I really, I'm a political scientist, right? I wanna see the government there with the hotlines. I wanna see the, you know, the rural outreach workers from the New York State Department of Labor responding this way. And the reality is it, it just doesn't work that way. And could I jump in on that? Yeah. Cause I think you're bringing up a really important point. Like why do we have to depend on corporations to do this? Why doesn't the government just do this? Well, I think it's important to look at the fair food program as a complement, and also as a push to government, right? So you might have a law, right? But unless you get appropriations, and unless you have the right number of inspectors who are equipped and empowered to go out there and investigate potential abuses, then that law might look nice on paper, but in reality, it doesn't change anything on the ground. So it's important for us to push the government around best practices. And one of the exciting things is that many of the government agencies that we've worked with, from the US Department of Justice to the EEOC, the Equal Opportunity Commission, 
have looked at how the program operated, recommended those practices as best practices, and adopted some of those practices. So it's this wonderful dance, right? It's that you have to build it in order to stop the abuses from happening, but we need all civil society actors and corporations doing their part too. So it's sort of, we really need both. And the great thing is by pushing on one end, you can also end up pushing government where it needs a little nudge to pick up its responsibility as well. Okay, so to take that a little further then, in New York State, um, I think a lot of people are wondering might be happening this year because we now have a Democratic Senate in New York State. Um, and for almost two decades, there's been legislation that's essentially a farm worker bill of rights, which would give New York State farm workers that right to a day of rest, the right to overtime pay, and collect bargaining protections. So people are wondering, okay, is this going to be one of the issues that finally passes under this new democratic um, majority? Um, and I think that this is something, if you're a New Yorker, to definitely look into. Um, and for anybody who's wondering if there's some tension here with the Hudson Valley farmworker researcher and the Hudson Valley farmer, um, Jody and I have been part of different conversations and working groups over several years. And one of the points is trying to understand how might the law be designed and shaped, particularly for smaller farmers, right? Because the reality is paying overtime if Jody, you know, woke up tomorrow and suddenly had to pay overtime at the same rate that industry had to pay overtime after 40 hours, that could put her out of business, right? So I think that there's a lot of conversations taking place among different agricultural stakeholders. Um, but I also want you to keep in mind that Jody, as someone who's trying to do the right thing to pay a fair wage to give vacation days to really prioritize her workers, right now she's at an extraordinary competitive disadvantage compared to some of the farms down the road who are not doing the same thing. Um, so I think another way to look at it is to try to imagine how farmers who are doing the right thing, and there are plenty of New York State farm workers who are trying to do the right thing, how legislation may actually even the playing field out a little bit more. And then as, as Noelle said, yeah, passing legislation and laws is one thing, enforcement is another, but if you don't have anything to enforce, where are you? So again, right, so anything that's going to increase worker power, um, and I think thinking about different types of government remedies and how you might support them, and different types of market models and how you might support them, and consider for yourselves, where are the workers involved? And I, I really can't emphasize that point more because most of us who consider ourselves New York foodies, our main relationships are actually with the small providers and the small growers. And we have a lot to learn from them, but we also need to learn from workers as well. Um, as a small farmer, there's uh they're trying to start a fair trade label called the Agricultural Justice Project. That would be like being certified as fair trade for a farm of my size. Um, so that's the thing you can encourage your farmer to do. It is an extra cost. It's an extra work for the farmer. But I think if the consumers are willing to pay like for that, like they're willing to pay for that little organic label, I think that's way more important to pay farmers a price so that they can also take care of the people who are doing all of the work to get the food to you. So, and also at farmer's markets or anything where I've been with customers, nobody has ever asked me about, what's it like to work on your farm? They've asked me, what do I spray? What don't I spray? And so I think it's also important to, to have those talks with your farmers who you're buying from. Um, because I think if farmers know it's important to their customers, that's also another way for them to say, oh, I need to think about this. I, I want to make those changes. And um, also another thing in New York, now that we have some Democrats in power, is being able for anyone who lives in New York to have access to a driver's license. And then it's called the Greenlight Campaign. People are really working hard on that because there's so many people who are driving to their farms every day who are at risk. Um, 
And that would make a huge change for the farm worker population all across New York to be able to drive to work and not be afraid. Thank you all so much for listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to the podcast, rate, and share it. And don't forget to support independent food radio by visiting heritageradionetwork.com and clicking on the beating heart. I'll see you next Wednesday. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family and become a member. Thanks for listening.